Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's show, Stephen Gilmore interviews Greg Jensen. Stephen is the Chief Investment Officer at New Zealand Superfund, the $41 billion innovative sovereign wealth fund whose CEO, Matt Winneray, was a former guest on Capital Allocators. Greg is the co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, where he works alongside fellow co-CIOs Ray Dalio and Bob Prince at the $150 billion systematic global macro manager that he joined 25 years ago. Bridgewater's investment process is underpinned by their desire to understand how global markets and economies work, use of technology, and principles-based firm culture focused on radical truth and transparency. We kick it off with my chatting with Stephen about his relationship with Bridgewater, uniqueness of the firm, and fit in New Zealand Super's portfolio. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. 
Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Stephen, great to see you and thanks for doing this. Thanks, Ted. Great to be here. Well, I'd love to tip this off by just asking the nature and duration of your relationship with Bridgewater. Well, I guess my relationship with Bridgewater extends across a couple of funds. For around nine years, I worked with the Future Fund, which is Australia's sovereign wealth fund. And for the last two and a bit years, I've been with New Zealand Super, which is New Zealand's sovereign wealth fund. And both funds invest in Bridgewater. So my first, let's say, close contact with the folks there would have been in 2009 when I joined the Future Fund. Although, of course, I was familiar with the name, I wasn't really familiar with exactly what Bridgewater did until I arrived in Melbourne. And so now, 11 years later, how would you describe what it is that Bridgewater does? I think the best way of describing it is to think about the logic for why markets work, to systematize it, and to continually refine that systematization of the process. So it's not about reinventing the wheel every time. So they collect huge amounts of data, they analyze things, and there's a logic which drives what they do. And when I say that, that's really their more discretionary trading activities. But they also very well known for what they call all weather, which is a risk parity portfolio. So those are the two main arms of Bridgewater's investments. So in both instances, it sounds like you walked into a seat where there was an existing relationship with Bridgewater. And I'm curious, as you think about the organization, how you compare them to another alternative to doing something like what they do. It's hard to compare because there aren't many others that I can think of that actually follow the same sort of logic that Bridgewater would. So they start from thinking about how the world works and that shapes the whole process. Other macro funds are perhaps either more discretionary or they are more reliant on the signals that come from price movements. So Bridgewater is somewhere in between. I think the other thing that stands out with Bridgewater is that there's been a huge focus on client support and client service. So Bridgewater folks really want to know how their investors work. And they're a great source of, I guess, intellectual property for me as an investor. So I can go to them and ask them lots of questions. They also produce a wealth of research. They come out with this daily sheet, which is very well read by the people who invest with them. And of course, everyone, or most people will know of Ray Dalio, who is quite a strong communicator. He's got messages to deliver. And at this stage in his career, he's... I guess, fully ensconced in doing that. So he's been writing books. So people do get to understand more about the principles that drive Bridgewater's thinking. So you have this organization that thinks about the world and does research quite differently, services clients quite differently from others. And then you have this piece that Bridgewater is very well known for the application of these principles. And that is actually something that didn't come up in your conversation with Greg. So how do you think about, as a client, this unique, let's just call it culture of the organization and its strengths and weaknesses? Well, I think it helps to understand that that's what drives a lot of what is Bridgewater. I would frame it as radical transparency. And I guess if you stem back and you say, well, well, what's wrong with that? That makes sense because it's about searching for the truth and being open and being open to those ideas. But of course, in reality, people often find that confronting. So I think if it's radical transparency with respect, that's fine. I actually like that approach. I can't say that everyone feels comfortable in that environment. So let's turn to thinking about Bridgewater in the context of your portfolio. Your total portfolio approach is quite different as the conversation I had had with Matt on the show about where does the allocation of Bridgewater fit in? Well, we run what we refer to as a reference portfolio. 
So we're a growth-orientated fund because we have a very long horizon. So you can think of our portfolio as being approximately 80% equities and 20% bonds. Now, for us to deviate from that, we have to think that whatever we're investing in is going to do better than some combination of equities and fixed income. So think of it as being like the funding source that we use. For someone like Bridgewater, they will describe their strategy as market neutral. We'll look back and say, well, maybe it's not quite market neutral, but it's close to that. So we'll look at funding it from that reference portfolio that I talked about, some combination of equities and bonds. So we would expect the investment in Bridgewater or anything else that's active to do better than that passive funding strategy. So it has to do that. In the case of Bridgewater, there's also the the intellectual exchange, the research. So we will call on them or ask them to help us with various questions. And there can be quite an active two-way debate and dialogue. Last year, we went through the review of our reference portfolio, which essentially expresses our risk appetite or our neutral portfolio. And we asked Bridgewater the question, okay, guys, if you were us with our mandate, how would you construct our portfolio? And that was quite helpful for us in terms of challenging ourselves and thinking about, well, how does our portfolio compare? What would we do differently if we were them? It didn't actually end up with us changing much, but it was very helpful to have some external party who knows us come in and actually test us. So when it comes to brass tacks on position size, you have an organization that is very different. In some ways, you could say unique. The way they approach the world, the way they invest, you can't really fill a bucket of Bridgewaters. So how do you think about how big is appropriate for that one manager in your portfolio? That's a great question. (laughs) It's a great question because the size is going to be a function of how confident we are in their ability to deliver alpha. And it's also going to be a function of all the other investment opportunities that we have. So I can't give you a straight answer apart from saying that those are the considerations. I would also say that it's typically quite hard to find skill. And if you can find it, it, sometimes it's difficult to access and sometimes it's difficult to scale. So we think about all those things when thinking about the sizing. Sometimes we just can't get the size that we'd like or we can't get the access that we'd like. Stephen, really appreciate it again. And thanks for bringing Greg to the show. Thanks very much, Ted. Really enjoyed it. Greg, thanks very much for agreeing to speak with me. I'm very interested in hearing about how you got into investing. What motivated you? And also just to hear a little bit about your background. Sure. I'll take you through very quickly the things that I think kind of connected in my life to bring me here, although it's a lot easier to make sense of it backward looking than, than as you're living it. As a kid, I moved around a bunch. I was on Long Island, moved to Toronto for a little while, graduated high school in upstate New York. And the one thing that links everything together is very early on, I found probability like swimming in water for me just so natural. And I was interested in problems that people found hard to solve. So I remember as a 10 or 11 year old, I loved sports, yet I wasn't very good at them. I really studied also like kind of the math of the sports as well. Got very early into baseball. There was a game in the US at the time called Stratomatic Baseball, where you would play as pick your team and from major league players and roll dice and figure out what happened in the game. And I remember as a 10 or 11 year old, rolling the dice and calculating how often different players made outs. And figuring out and becoming like better than um, any of my few friends and siblings at Stratomatic by doing this. And from that, recognizing patterns and probability. In fact, I remember going to the store when they used to sell seven ups. And if under the bottle cap, you could win another bottle of seven up. This was the hugest prize I could imagine at the time. And I studied the patterns on the top of the bottle caps. And there was a pattern to where the winners were underneath the bottle caps. And so Early on was into things like that, then ended up going to Dartmouth and studying economics and math. And just those patterns got me into thinking about what things I had edges in, what kind of gambling and such. And then as I was thinking about what I wanted to do, the combination of having been in Canada and everybody making fun of the Canadian dollar got me thinking about currency markets and global macro markets. And I fell in love with Bridgewater for three reasons. I went as an intern. I thought the culture was incredible. Essentially, people just telling the truth and trying to figure out how the world works. Combine that with this game of looking down, as Bridgewater does, at 
this macro world and being able to say, well, what can you predict? What can you say about what's next? And translating that kind of thinking about probability and games into a life. And third, and at the time was more important than I'm I sort of willing to admit now is the fact that I didn't have to wear a tie. Those three things really combined together to bring me in first as an intern. And then the last 25 years at Bridgewater from intern into my role as co-CIO. And that's been the journey. So tell me a bit about when you arrived at Bridgewater 25 years ago, what was it like? How big was it? And why Bridgewater? Because 25 years ago, not as well known. What attracted you? To get into investment management right out of college, to have this global macro institution that was thinking about how to systemize things, that was extremely rare at the time. So this match of fundamentally really deeply understanding and systemizing that understanding was such a natural click for me. So that was first thing. And the fact that it was small at the time, there were 44 employees were managing in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was a mess. And that was all exciting. And so the mess was like, you show up and nobody even knows you're coming and you have to get your own computer. And it was all like that. There wasn't a well-oiled machine, but there were people that were passionate about markets, passionate about building a community of investors. And that was so much more important than all the other trappings of the other types of jobs that I had offers at. So you say 44 people, hundreds of millions. What does it look like today? So now there's over 1,500 people and $150 billion, over $150 billion. So quite a 25-year period in terms of change and growth and struggle along the way. You also mentioned the systematization or the systematic approach. And I know that Bridgewater focuses a lot on understanding logic and then coding it and making sure it's built into the way the investment process works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How does that work? Yeah, well, I would say this is kind of our most important secret sauce, which is how do you as an organization compound your understanding? How do you learn something important, not lose track of it, apply it again and again when it comes up? And so this really started at Bridgewater in 1980. Ray had lost money in markets so consistently that he said, I better change the way I'm doing things. And started down this path of writing down his reasoning for every investment decision he was making. At the time, that was on yellow piece of paper that at Bridgewater, people run around with a scientific calculator to calculate what that meant for that given day. And it started this process that's been this incredible process of better and better ways to take the logic of a fundamental trader, to pull that out of their brains, to write that down into decision rules today in algorithms, but in algorithms that speak to the investor. Basically, one of the goals of our systematic process was to make it both computer readable so that we could run our processes 24 hours a day everywhere in the world, but also human readable so that all of the logic was reflected back to us all of the time. So we can constantly think about what we're missing, improve the processes as as we go. So I think that's really critical. The basic question that we keep asking people is, why do you believe what you believe? And eventually you could get to the deep reasoning and you can encode that deep reasoning into algorithms. And then you can evolve because every decision that we would make, we've pulled the reasoning out. So what kind of data do you need? We've gone and got that data. We've applied that into our process so we can focus all of our energy on what we're getting wrong and what we need to do differently or what's happening in the world that is different than what we currently reflect in our process. And so that's how we spend our day. Applying the rules that we've come up with over the last 40 years is easy. That's all done systematically. So we spend all of our effort on, well, what's different and what does that mean? And how do we actually learn from our past mistakes to improve those processes, to build them in and to continue to improve the system and compound each understanding that we have. So how many new ideas get included into the process? Because you've talked about you know, 40 years, you've aggregated all this information, this logic. So it must be pretty good at describing the way the world works. People will come up with new ideas. They'll want to test them. But what's the success rate of these new ideas being included into the way you think about how the financial markets and the world works? Well, luckily, it's so hard to describe so that there's a constant amount of learning. So I'd say on the average year, kind of 10% change in our processes as a result of what we learn on an, in an average year. 
And we kind of measure ourselves against that. That basic process starts with every Monday morning, we have a discussion about what's going on in the world where all of our team leads, we, we now have hundreds of investors thinking about what's possibly missing in our process. We call it our radar, which is basically looking for things in the world that might hit us and sink the ship. And that is a packet, 600, 700 pages long that we read each weekend, which then sets us up for the Monday morning meeting. And the best of those ideas are then curated into what we call our surge process, that every six months, we organize about 10 to 15 projects that we expect are the best ideas out of the things that we've been worrying about to impact our process. And of those, something like three to five come out to be good enough ideas that they become part of that process. So it's that kind of iteration of learning that we're going through, all focused on, well, what are the biggest things we're missing? And how can we figure out how to measure those things, assess whether they truly are real phenomenon that we can predict and put in as part of our process. Now, this logic leads you to undertake uh, quite a large number of trades. But of course, not all of those trades are going to make money. Can you give me an idea of just what percentage of the trades that you come up with are actually profitable? Because some people think you'll put in a lot of effort, you'll do all this research, and the vast majority will be successful. But that's not the case, is it? Because even though you're doing this work, if you can get maybe a little over 50%, you're probably doing quite well. Talk us through that. How does that work? Yeah, well, you're right that at least for us, this is very hard. <laughs> you know, predicting what's next to markets is hard enough to describe what's going on, forget what's going to happen next. Our ideas are generally in the 55 45 range, where our positions have something like a 55 45 chance of being right at any given one in, in, let's say, a given 12 month period. That means the only way to survive in this business, if you look at Bridgewater's Pure Alpha as an example, you know, we've made money in 80% of years. The only reason that's the case is because we've been able to diversify across many different ideas. And systemization is so huge because now we trade every major liquid market. We can trade every commodity, every currency, every bond market, every equity market. And if you could trade each of those with a 55, 45% chance, then you have enough to maybe get yourself to something like 75, 25, 80, 20. But it requires that combination of great insight. Just getting 55, 45 in as tough a game as the markets is really hard, particularly when you're not talking about what we call beta. If you're not just investing in, the st in a market that has a risk premium that goes up, but you're actually long, short, and equal degrees over time, 55, 45 is really tough. So how do you translate 55, 45 into a reliable strategy that's where you need to be able to diversify, take a, find a lot of those positions, and those positions have to be different enough that you are able to translate that 55-45 into a workable winning percentage such that you could survive as a manager. You're talking about those positions being different enough. Sometimes you may be surprised and those positions may actually turn out to not be as different as you think. They may be highly correlated. Can you describe some examples where that has happened to your detriment where things have gone wrong and also where things have gone right. What have been the biggest misses and what have been the biggest wins in terms of the outcomes of this process you're describing? Well, I'd say the biggest, certainly in recent years, and the biggest miss was how we handled COVID. We were had a set of positions entering COVID that were all individually crafted. So each one looking sort of bottoms up and at what was cheap and where was the liquidity in the world and what was happening. And it's kind of a big picture to summarize a lot of small things. The Fed had changed their policy. If you're now putting yourself before COVID, they had gone into this new mode of money management. They weren't going to tighten preemptively. They were pushing a lot of liquidity. There were places in the world that had not, had not yet benefited from that liquidity in the emerging markets in Europe and currency positions and equity positions and commodity positions, almost all of which got hit by COVID. We hadn't had the perfect storm of we average that 55-45, and it ranges from 80-20, the best years, and 40-60 in the worst years. And then in COVID, we were probably about 30-70. Entering COVID, we thought hard about it. We had looked at 1918 and thought through what it was like to live through other pandemics in markets and missed it, missed the odds of everything shutting down globally as quickly and the unifying elements that that had. Nonetheless, because we've studied everything back to hundreds of years of history, we know the one thing you can count on is being surprised. So we also had what we call our event risk fund that was 
protecting from an extreme tail event. We had thought about this and built this after September 11th, recognizing there could be an extreme tail event that has nothing to do with economics. And so as a result, while we had a loss of significant loss as a result of those things, that loss was consistent with our historical losses because we also had tail risk protection essentially against the portfolio that we knew had some bias in it that would be particularly hit by a massive growth event of that type that wasn't economically caused. Nonetheless, we living it at the time and thinking through, well, what should we be doing? And despite the work, did miss something that probably should have been handled differently. That was kind of on the extreme end of the loser kind of thing. And certainly is our biggest risk is non-economic events that can overwhelm global macro markets in many ways. You know, and then the best times I think are when there are big macro environments with huge policy movements and big differences in those policy movements across the country. So if you take coming out of the financial crisis in 2009, 2010, you've got some countries doing quantitative easing, some countries not doing quantitative easing. You've got this huge policy push, big differences across country, big imbalances. Those are kind of where we can actually pick off a whole bunch of things and have any one of our bets on average will be 55, 45. But there've been times, and I actually think we're in one now, where they're skewed to 60-40 and there are a lot of them. And that's when we have our biggest signals and our most risk. And that was 2010, 2003, 2004 to 95, 96. Those types of periods had particularly good environments for us. And so those were the ones that come to mind when there's big differences across the world and big macro causes. Aren't we going through a repeat of that now? So post-COVID, you've had a I guess a number of countries doing things that are fairly similar, but to different extents, some that aren't doing it, maybe a a dispersion between what might be happening in the US and perhaps some of the emerging economies, different attitudes. So is now a good time for the type of investing that you do? I think so. We're going to have to translate this into results, but really in the last 15 years, we haven't had imbalances across countries of this magnitude to have, as like you're saying, such big macro policy, monetary and fiscal policy, what we call MP3, but the fusion of monetary and fiscal policy, understanding where that money is going, what it's going to mean for what countries, for what sectors, for what currencies. This is as big, as ripe an area, in my view, as we've had, certainly since the post-financial crisis period. Our measures reflect that. They're kind of the biggest signals we've had in a long time. And so I think it should be a very ripe set of opportunities for macro managers who understand this range of policy and what that's likely to mean. Now, it's not going to be an easy road because there is also the low sample size in the sense that this merger of monetary and fiscal policy, like understanding where the limits are, that I think the path is pretty easy to see. We're going to keep pushing as a world, the US in particular, print as much money as you can, spend as much money as you can until it causes the natural problems that it'll cause. Whether that plays out over a year or plays out over five years or 10 years, I, I don't know. But I think that destiny is clear and that it's the trajectory of that. So it's interesting to live through a bond rally into an exploding economy, an economy that we think will nominal GDP will continue to rise at extremely fast rates, normally a cyclical period that would be clearly leading to rising interest rates. But instead, you've got the Fed purposely lagging it, allowing that to go. I believe that's setting up a much bigger bond sell-off and interest rate rise than the markets are expecting. But you know, you live through this and you see it's a reminder of how difficult, despite all those measures and the pressures and everything that you're seeing, how difficult it is to predict how the markets will react to fundamental events, particularly in the short term. So I do think you've got these big imbalances. I think it's setting up a tremendous amount of opportunities, but how the policy levers will be pulled is always more challenging to predict and easier to see in retrospect than as you're going through it prospectively. I think this setup is really good and we'll see. I think the biggest thing happening is this explosion in nominal GDP growth into shortages at a time where the Fed is allowing that to happen. You have the lowest real interest rates you've had in 40 years and setting up an environment that's very different than the last 20, 25 years. And yet the markets are still so slow, I think, to react to that difference. Now, that setup that you're describing is one that would ordinarily lead to inflation. And I know that 
Bridgewater, and you in particular, have done a lot of work looking at inflation. So what do you think about the inflation question? You've implied that you think there's some upside, given your comments on yields and bond markets potentially selling off. But can you walk us through the thinking on that? It's interesting because if you take most of our experiences the last 40 years, right, there's been what I, I think five major contributors to the disinflationary wave. And we could all argue about how important each of them were, but it started with Volcker and monetary policy in the early 80s, deciding to have low inflation, taking the pain of having high real interest rates and causing an economic decline in order to get to sustainable inflation rates. So first thing was high real interest rates and central bankers deciding that we're going to have lower inflation. The second thing was globalization. So you get the interest rate decline, you get globalization. With the globalization, you have this very pro-corporate environment where union power is stripped, labor power is stripped, and a great tax environment, all of which made this incredibly pro-corporate environment on the base of monetary policy that was focused on controlling inflation. And finally, and hopefully quite importantly, was the technological enhancements that allowed for more and more production at lower and lower marginal cost. So that's the range of things. Now you've stripped away almost all of those except for technology. You're no longer in such an incredibly pro-corporate environment. You're no longer in a world where the central banks are trying to prevent inflation. In fact, they're trying to cause it. That you're no longer in a world of fiscal constraint. You're no longer in a world of globalization. In fact, you're shifting from having the most efficient to the most stable supply lines. And you're seeing it. The shortages that you're seeing, that basically a shift in the view of how to create inventories going from on-time delivery and big inventories being a big problem to the people that have inventory getting huge benefits. So this big shift is happening. And while I think technology will continue to be a major deflationary force, you can overwhelm it by printing money. And in fact, policy-wise, you probably should. That translating the benefits of technology the way it was working from going to a very limited set of people to using that deflationary force to allow more fiscal policy and more equalization across humanity in terms of the benefits of the technology. And so you're seeing that and you're seeing that fast. And while I don't know if we've done enough to tip the scale, I think we might've, but I really think if we haven't and we go into another disinflationary wave that you'll get more and that that's where the incentives seem very clear and the destiny seems clear. On top of that, when you look at the markets and you think about how will these markets be sustained? that today paper wealth has never been anywhere near this high relative to incomes, relative to the cash flows that support that paper wealth. Wealth for households, as an example, are six times income, way beyond anything it's ever been. And wealth across the world relative to incomes are at record levels. If you took what it would take to pay off the corporate debt plus the corporate equity value in US equities, you're talking about 26 years. If it was like a family business and you're trying to pay off your parents as you inherit this business, it would take 26 years at today's valuation. That's a peak level. That's only occurred in 1999, in 1965, and 1929 and 1910. And if you look at how those were resolved twice, 1929, 1999, through crashes and twice through inflations. And you think about which world are we going to accept? Are we going to accept equilibrating the wealth and the cash flow by a crash, or are we going to get there through inflation? I think policymakers are much more likely to take inflation than a deflationary crash at this point. And there's so much that can be done in society by distributing the wealth via those mechanisms. So I think you're likely to see that. And that's the trajectory that we're on, both from uh, what's in policymakers' incentives, what's also when you think about market pricing, and how you could ever reconcile cash flows and asset values. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year, 
That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So you're talking about inflation acting as a device to transfer resources from savers to debtors. That leads to another question, which is the plight of retirees, pensioners, who are savers. So if you go into a world of inflation, what does it mean for them? That is the path. The choices that we face are not great in the sense of you have an economy where wealth is distributed poorly and you have an economy where asset values are great, but underlying cash flows and incomes are not close to those. So that is right that you're going to have that transfer. And that's particularly hard for the people that haven't benefited much from the assets and are on fixed incomes of some type. So I think in what investors can do is at least balance their portfolio. A, recognize the situation, which is it is not a great world for investors. The world is bad for investors going forward. It's been great looking backwards. So take that, but recognize going forward, the real yield priced into everything is bad. People look at the real yield in bonds and say, why would I want a negative one, negative 2% real yield? Well, the same thing is priced into equities. Like when you look at the earnings, the profits, et cetera, something similar is priced into almost every asset that you're going to lose ground in real terms. And so how can you handle that? The main thing is diversify to at least have some assets that don't get absolutely crushed if there's inflation. And to the extent possible, take advantage of what the government's giving you, which is extremely low interest rates and reasonable nominal GDP. So to try to harness that difference between the likely growth in cash flows and nominal GDP and the interest rate, and to try to make sure you have a balanced portfolio that does okay in an inflationary, particularly a stagflationary environment, that most people don't have the type of assets they should have, whether that's some degree of vile bonds, even at the, these low real yields, some degree of gold, and potentially other wealth-saving devices in those periods. That's where we would look as an investor. And then as a kind of a structural alpha, I think one of the best things the world's giving you is this government's going to spend a lot of money, force essentially nominal GDP to be okay. And today, the interest rate's extremely low relative to that. So the more you can capture companies that are likely to have cash flows aligned with nominal GDP, and you're willing to take that arbitrage, i.e. take the short bond position with that, the likelihood that the nominal GDP is going to be significantly higher than the current interest rate is quite high. And there are ways to isolate the companies who are likely to have profit growth and revenue growth reasonably in line with nominal GDP growth and focus on that arbitrage one way or the other. Do you think that's why growth companies have been so well bid over the past decade or so? Well, I think you've set up this right very low real yields should create entrepreneurialism. They should create invention and people being willing to pay for cash flows 10, 20 years from now. And you've seen that phenomenon. Now, to me, that phenomenon is extremely priced in. And the companies that may not have cash flows are extremely reliant on the current levels of liquidity and really low interest rates, where if interest rates change, that phenomenon can change quite quickly. And those companies will get hammered. So the First thing is, if you're in those companies, making sure that you're hedging the most obvious risk, which is a rise in interest rates, having a particularly large effect on future cash flows. So the thing that I think will do better are the companies not as speculative, not as far out as rates rise, if you are able to take companies that can harness nominal GDP and cash flows and spread those to the uh, current interest rate. You need the arbitrage on the other side. You actually have to be short the bonds, which very few people are in their portfolios, in order to take advantage of that spread. And it's really locking in that difference that I think is one of the best opportunities out there. You talked about low rates and entrepreneurs. 
and innovation which results from that. Another way of looking at it, of course, is that low rates keep companies alive. You get the zombies. And you also see or have seen very low productivity growth. Is it possible that these low rates are actually leading to lower potential growth? It's been interesting. I find that hard to believe, but I agree the data points to some degree in that direction and have struggled with this topic of what is actually happening here. Certainly what I think is true is money got the combination of a pro-corporate environment, a high technology winner-take-all, money keeps getting stuck in a smaller and smaller group of people. And I do think that is creating less and less CapEx, less and less risk-taking with that money, and certainly less spending. So less inflation because the money was so concentrated. Distributing that money across society more so will lead to more spending, probably some of the demand pull on productivity. If you just take recently, productivity numbers have improved again. Why is that happening? There's so much demand. You just can't build out supply at the rate. You can't rehire the people, et cetera. So you've seen the last couple of quarters, good productivity number because of a demand pull on productivity to match this. There's some inflation, but there's also been some productivity gains. And so I think that for whatever reason, there was too little productivity and too little fixed investment. And it makes sense for the government to step into that world. You have a negative real yield world, borrowing to do things that are good for society. You don't even have to be very good at it. When the real yield is negative, you can be pretty crappy at deciding what's good for society and it's still worth it. So that again, not that politicians are getting there this way, but the economics are hyper encouraging capital expenditures, largely because the private sector, as you said, isn't doing it. So you have these zombie companies to some extent but nobody is actually taking advantage of very negative real interest rates to make very significant capital expenditures. Very different world than it was in the 40s. I mean, years where IBM would invest multiples of their revenue. There's just nothing at that scale and the government stepping in to do some of those things to take advantage of these circumstances is actually a policy that makes sense. Of course, it's a policy that's also likely to go too far and cause all kinds of second and third order consequences. But with negative real yields, somebody should be doing something. I want to go back to one of the other comments you made. A couple of times you referred to balance in portfolios. And one of the, the other things that Bridgewater is known for is its approach to risk parity, which you call all weather. Could you describe that? Because with that process, you're trying to set up a portfolio that is robust to a whole range of outcomes. And you've just talked about how complex the current environment is. So how do you manage all weather in this environment? Yeah, great question. So first off, just to talk about all weather and pure alpha is our two kind of main products. There's two, in our view, the separation between the two is important as it describes what each one is. There is ways to make money simply by investing because somebody is passing off their risk to you. And then there's the question of how to best balance those risks. And then there's timing. There's alpha saying, okay, right now is a particularly good time, or this currency is going to beat that currency. In pure alpha, we do the second. In all weather, we do the first, which is just take the risk premiums that different entities in the world offer you in exchange for the risk that they want to sell off. So whether that's in stock market or the bond market or commodity markets, there's risks that the market offers you essentially a premium. And what we've done with all weather, this is back in 1996, was how do you build the best portfolio of that? And it was a simple concept, which is there's different major economic environments. There are periods where growth is great. There's periods where growth is terrible. And there's periods where inflation is a problem. And there's periods where inflation is low. And if you can have a portfolio that does well in each environment, put together those four portfolios, harness risk premiums by being invested, but being invested in a way that's balanced such that you don't care whether it's an inflationary environment or a weak growth environment. That's what we've done with all weather. And that since 1996, that's had a much better information ratio, let's say return relative to risk, than investing in the stock market or a 60-40 portfolio because it's more balanced. And that, it's not a hyper-mathematical thing or anything. It's just simply look at those environments, make sure you're balanced to that wide range of outcomes. And that's what we've been able to do that has had this consistent performance. It's almost never the best thing. It's always like pretty good, but never the best performing asset. 
But because it's balanced in all environments, we've stress tested this through the Weimar Republic and through the Great Depression and hundreds of years of history, you get acceptable outcomes and achieve your goals across an extremely wide range of outcomes. And that's really the purpose of it. I suppose one of the challenges for that type of approach, and also one of the challenges for traditional portfolios, is an environment where you have real yields rising, high inflation, and low growth. What do you do in that environment? And also, how likely do you think that type of environment is from where we are now? Well, I think it's very plausible. And so I think, first off, relative to other portfolios, all weather would be in good shape there because part of that, the rising inflation having a 25% of your portfolios in assets that particularly do well in inflation. So I think you do need a mix of essentially positions that break even inflation and gold and aisle bonds, things that will be okay in that environment or good to offset the losses, as you're saying, you'd get in a more traditional portfolio. So starting point would be that. But um, rising real yields, like you said, that really tight money, a situation where cash is the best asset is the real risk. Now, that is rare because the government can drive down cash and they really don't desire a situation where cash is the best asset because it takes money out of the capital markets, generally leads to a bad economy. But there are periods of time where that is necessary. If you take 80, 81, 82, it usually comes after the inflation. So the early wave of inflation, as long as you have a balanced mix of assets, you could do well. The final phase, when the inflation becomes highly problematic and they tighten monetary policy to stop it, that's when you really need to be in cash to do acceptably well. And I think we're very far from that scenario today. I think they're going to continue to make cash a terrible asset and drive up the real economy through that process. Now, that's not necessarily good for, certainly driving down cash isn't necessarily good for bonds. It can also be bad for equities in the type of environment. But somewhere, nominal GDP inflation will be rising if they're making cash less and less attractive. But you're right, there will then be a phase where they then try to stabilize cash. And that phase is dangerous for all assets relative to cash. You'll still be better off in a balanced portfolio than a concentrated one. But hedging that risk and recognizing those periods, that's like the mix of beta and alpha. We have a portfolio called optimal portfolio where we blend in particularly to be aware of that risk and when you should shift out of investing and into cash, which is a rare phenomenon, but is occasionally necessary. I'm quite interested in specific investment views now. You've mentioned a few things. You've talked about the bond market, expecting that it will sell off at some point. You've also talked about the value of getting exposure to those companies that can benefit from stronger nominal GDP growth. What else are you looking at at the moment? I know it's always very difficult when you're talking about periods of time. So, so to give some sense of time frame would also be helpful. Yeah, well, typically our positions are six months to two years in, in terms of pure alpha. And I think measuring those differences, the balance payments differences across countries, and systematically looking at what those imply for what's next lead to a lot of different opportunities. I'd say right now, I think the Mexican peso and the Brazilian real, what you're seeing in those countries and much of the emerging world relative to the developed world is much more traditional monetary policy traditional fiscal policy. So while you had a big push of fiscal during the crisis, you're getting the withdrawal of that, you're getting the tightening in a more normal cyclical way at a time when the US and the developed world are on a very different trajectory, setting up the situation where you have some of the best balance of payments you've ever had in the developed world and some of the tightest relative monetary policy. In our view, extremely bullish for some of those currencies. Then you have countries that are doing things similar to the US without nearly the same reserve status. The pound is particularly unattractive in our minds about the payment situation. The amount of money that's being printed, the long-term growth prospects are all leading to a quite dangerous situation there. I think in equity markets, it's a mix. Some equities hedge with bonds are okay, but a lot of things are quite extended. We certainly like foreign equities more than US equities. I particularly like the setup in Japanese equities because more than any other country, the policy response to any downturn will be to buy equities directly. And at the same time, the prices are not nearly as expensive as in other places. So I think while they won't necessarily be the best performer in a bull market, I think in a return to risk because of policymakers' willingness to just buy the equities in any downturn makes the risk reward different than most of the other places in the world. So those are some of the things that pop 
to mind. I'm quite tempted to go back to something you said earlier in our discussion, and you talked about your focus on probabilistic outcomes and some of the gambling you may have done related to sports or even the discussion on seven up competitions. I know that you're still very interested in the sports world. Can you tell me a little bit about how you keep engaged there? Well, in terms of sports, yeah, I'm a huge Mets fan and that's a mostly a suffering sentence, a little better this year. Over the years, I got into poker. I haven't been able to play as much as I do, but certainly poker has a lot of the elements of the markets of imperfect information and the competition of it. And so I do a fair amount of that, particularly when I can. And it's good humbling experience, just like markets are. It's very tough and playing against people that are super focused on it when it's more of a hobby for you is a is a good way to get humbled. And then my other thing is not quite in the same world, but I have developed this passion for understanding the possibilities of AI and sort of the remote possibilities of things that can radically change the world. And so I'm also quite involved in, in the development of AI generally. Obviously at Bridgewater, it's, it's relevant to understand how AI is playing out both from what we can utilize AI to do and also the impact it's having on the global economy and such. And, and for me personally, this is, comes to the probabilities of extremely bad outcomes and how do you manage those? I'm very interested in that, in that we only get one chance to develop an intelligence greater than us. And if you do it wrong, it's the end of things. And there's a very, very good chance we're going to do it wrong, just judging by how rarely we as a species get things right the first time. So I've been passionately interested in that and providing what I can a little bit to try to ensure that we do it with the highest possibility of getting it right. I want to combine a couple of those comments. Bridgewater has actually employed some poker players. How do you get on with them and what do they contribute to the way that your process works? I think it's good background, although it's simultaneously. like The thing that's so great about Bridgewater in my mind and so different than poker is it's a community trying to solve these problems together where poker is a very individual sport, although there are people that work together to figure things out. But in the end, it's a very individual thing. That's kind of the challenge of the culture clash. A lot of the background in really high stakes poker and the high level poker has a lot of good overlap in the sense that the problems are like that. It's probabilistic, getting a small edge, being able to make sure you keep your bet size is appropriate to take advantage of a small edge over time. All of those things fit very well, as does the study. A lot of the really high quality study requires a lot of research, a lot of technical skill to do that. But the difference between what it's like to run a community that's driven to understanding versus being an individual person taking your own bets, that's probably the most difficult in terms of the aligning people with that background to really be great contributors. But I think it's in many cases been great relationships and insightful people that bring something. You certainly need it. If you look at Bridgewater, we hire people with a wide variety, botanists, history majors to economics majors to poker players, like a wide range, because looking at the world and understanding it, it's not a pure math puzzle. It's not a pure philosophy puzzle. It's a blend of those things. And certainly our community reflects that. What question should I have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? Well, not that one. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've hit on a lot of the most important things to sort of get to know and understand me and how we invest. So I don't think you're, you're missing much. I know there was a few questions related to memories and mentors and, and things that have stuck with me and lessons I've learned along the way. And so when I think about mentors, you know, I've been lucky to worked at the same place for 25 years. Obviously that has pros and cons in terms of the nature of the mentors you get, but to have been with somebody like Ray Dalio, who's my co-CIO and founder of Ridgewater, who pursued excellence his whole life incredibly, like super passionate about markets. To this day, it's 80 hours, 90 hours, focused on what's happening in the world and how to think about it and how to build a great company. And seeing that level of passion and excellence is just such a huge inspiration in my life in terms of what it takes to be really great at something. And so I think having that in my life, but also the evolution I've had with other mentors to see in better ways, the balance and also the importance of different types of characteristics in people. I I think of Craig Mundy, who probably about 10 years ago now came into 
my life at Bridgewater's life as an advisor on how to manage technology better than we were. And in my view today, just like to run an organization, you have to be able to manage people. You have to be able to manage technology at that same level to be able to manage an organization. And Craig gave me such wonderful advice on how to do that and how stretching that was to deal with different people with totally different motivations than let's say Ray and I had and how you go from as an investor, you got to be willing to change your mind and everything's new every day and to achieve great technological progress, you actually have to have the steadiness to make a decision, stick with the decision and see it all the way through. It's a very different skill set. And having had Craig open my mind to that was a huge thing as well. So they really stand out as mentors that have really helped blend my passion for markets, probabilities with a true sustainable way to systemize that understanding and build that together. And so that's certainly an area that we didn't get to that I thought was worth describing. That's great. As you know, Ted usually finishes off his interviews with a, with a series of standard questions. So I'm going to put them to you. And the first one is, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I think we've hit on a lot of different things. So I, as I mentioned before, I, poker and this problem of AI are probably outside of family relationships and work, the things that take up most of my time. And I find the problems super interesting. So have you developed an AI that can defeat the team at poker? I'm working on it. That's a project I'm working on with my kids, actually. And there's a lot of good development on AI and poker. And it's amazing for a game that's been around for thousands of years, still what you can discover with computers. What is your most important daily habit? You know, I'm bad at habits. I don't have habits in my mind, or at least not purposeful ones. Probably most of my habits are bad. The thing I'd say that has helped with focus and health to a certain degree is intermittent fasting. I don't eat till 2 p.m. That's been a um, actually a revelation over the last five years on how much better energy can be and if, you, uh, if you're able to do that and, and have eating periods and low-carb diet with intermittent fasting. It's totally changed my energy and the degree of volatility in my mood. What about your biggest personal pet peeve? I have a hard time with that one just because I, I try hard not to let individual differences bother me the way they did, certainly in the past. And that's certainly been one of my best growth things has been really allowing for people's differences and um, not seeing them as bothersome, but seeing them as valuable. Probably still the hardest thing for me is people that are not explicit in what they're thinking. It's hard enough to communicate, but to communicate with people that are indirect is a particular challenge. And so I'd say kind of indirectness is the thing that I try to stamp out the most. What is the biggest mistake you have made and what did you learn from it? Obviously, you've talked about an investment mistake, but what other mistakes would you highlight in the lessons learned? The first 10 years of my professional experience we're pretty much a straight line up. Bridgewater had a straight line up. I had a straight line up going from intern to co-CIO and, and CEO. And I'd say the arrogance problem, the belief that I actually knew what I was doing was by far my biggest mistake. It caused lots of, <laughs> lots of problems. But the struggle of how many things we've gotten wrong since I've personally gotten wrong in my personal life, in my professional life. And so I'd say by far the biggest mistake was believing my own BS and coming to a much better place where you could deal with being wrong so much better when you're much more aware of how likely you are to be wrong. So I'd say that I always warn people that the worst thing that could happen to them is go to a casino and win the first time. And in life, it's like that too. And so I think most of my early mistakes were associated with even though intellectually knowing how important diversification was and how likely to be wrong we would be and kind of knowing that mathematically, it's really took experiencing it to learn and move forward. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? The memory that pops into my mind, I'm not sure it's quite a teaching, but there's a professional baseball player, Thurman Munson, who died in the late 70s. It was my first experience with death very early on. I was young. And I remember my mom saying, you know, explaining to me what death was and also that it's important to have these memories and take a moment to have a memory. And what she did was she took a baseball card of Thurman Munson and said, Greg, I'm going to show you this now and I'm going to put this away for you. So you'll have this memory of when this terrible thing happened and the emotional feeling it gave you. And that really had big impact on me. I try to do that. I try to, on big events, 
force myself or others to have a moment of reflection of something tangible to remember related to that event. And it also started off, and I still to this day have this passion and love for baseball cards and the feeling that they evoke as a result of that moment. So I think that taking something tangible out of a big learning moment and whatever, trying to reflect on something physical about it has produced a lifelong of memories that are really ingrained and ways to come back to them and kind of randomly this weird view on baseball cards, which themselves have been in a relative bubble recently. It was also lucky financial advice. You've also talked about the importance of humility and that lesson that you learned. But I'm wondering what other life lessons you've learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life. The nature of the people you surround yourself with. I think one of the things that I is a strength of mine is I have tolerance for crazy people. I think genius comes in a crazy package and I've surrounded myself with a wide range of people that are, I think, in part genius and part crazy. And what I've come to see is the need, is the strength of having balancers to that. People that aren't crazy and maybe aren't quite as genius and really recognizing the cliche that you are the people that are around you. And if you're surrounded by somewhat narcissistic, genius, crazy people, and that's all you're surrounded by, you're in, in a lot of trouble. And so I think the lesson of collecting the people around you who fulfill everything that's needed, whether it's in an organization or in your life, that took me a long time to get to. And I'm, I think I've gotten to much stable, better teams and relationships as a result of seeing that range rather than focusing on on a more narrow set of qualities. That's great, Greg. Look, thank you very much indeed for your time. I've really enjoyed the chat. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.